Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome, everybody, to the History of Persia, Episode 1, Assyria and Setting the Stage. As much as I want to dive right into the Persians themselves, they were in fact the product of the world around them. So we will be starting with a brief overview of the Near Eastern world and its history as it stood on the precipice of Persian conquest in the 6th century BC. Choosing a starting point for the history of the Near East is particularly challenging, more than 5,000 years ago, it was already home to the first cities and written languages. It would be easy to start from the beginning of recorded history, but that is a rabbit hole I would like to avoid, at least for the time being. Fortunately, history does provide us with a convenient starting point to begin our narrative at the end of the 10th century BCE as the Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean worlds emerged from a prolonged Dark Age. Over the course of the 12th century BCE, a calamity called the Bronze Age collapse by historians and archaeologists swept from Greece and Egypt in the west to modern Iran in the east. Trade routes collapsed all around the Near East, and the world fell into a period of economic recession. Tin and copper, necessary to make the bronze tools that dominated that period, became difficult to import as trade routes broke down, eventually leading to the development of ironworking. Once great cultures like the Mycenaean Greeks, Hittites, and Babylonians collapsed under military invasions and possibly famines, these same disasters stunted and diminished Egypt, Assyria, and Elam. Written records from across the region are either entirely absent or rare from the mid-1100s to the late 900s. There is widespread evidence for internal violence and strife in many kingdoms, as well as invasions from outside forces such as the Aramaeans in Babylonia, Phrygians in Anatolia, and the mysterious Sea Peoples, as various tribes are called in Egyptian records in both Egypt and Canaan. The story of recovery and a short geographical tour of the Near East begins on the Levantine coast in the region of Phoenicia, which included parts of modern Lebanon and Syria. A map of all of this is available on the website, and Phoenicia is the name used by the ancient Greeks to describe the same region that is called Canaan in the Bible and other Semitic language texts. Modern scholarship tends to follow the biblical precedent and use Canaan to describe the region in the Bronze Age, prior to the rise of the ancient Hebrew kingdoms of Israel and Judah, while Phoenicia is usually used to describe the city-states that maintained pagan Canaanite culture to the north of the biblical kingdoms in modern Lebanon. The Phoenician cities of Tyre, Sidon, Byblos, and Arwad cannot accurately be described as recovering from the Bronze Age collapse, as they did not noticeably suffer from the disasters of the 12th century. They likely had economic disruption as their international trading partners collapsed, but the Phoenicians themselves carried on. 
Over the following centuries, while their neighbors tried to regain their footing, the Phoenicians became the masters of luxury goods like quality timber and rare dyes in the region. However, their real fame comes from the Phoenician reputation as the great seafaring merchants of the ancient world. In the 12th century, they began exploring the whole Mediterranean, and by the 10th, they had established ties and colonies as far as modern Spain and Morocco, including the city of Carthage, which would become the rival of Rome nearly 700 years later. Phoenician merchants eventually became famed in the classical world for their crafts and artwork as well, but very few of those examples have survived to the modern day. Likewise, the Phoenician written record and histories are almost entirely lost to us. Greek and Roman authors apparently used Phoenician sources, but today they are known only indirectly. Despite this, the possible greatest legacy of the Phoenicians comes from their writing, the alphabet. Alphabetic writing systems appear to have developed in or near Phoenicia in the late Bronze Age, but it was through Phoenician trade that the system spread to their neighbors, like the Greeks, Hebrews, and Aramaeans, during this so-called Dark Age. And from there, it would spread still further to Latin in the west, Persian in the east, and many others over time. North of the Phoenician cities were the Neo-Hittite cultures of Anatolia and northern Syria. How much continuity of people there was in the ruling class is hard to determine, but there is clear evidence of some cultural continuity from the Hittite Empire that collapsed in the 12th century to the Neo-Hittite peoples of this later period. Assyrian records continue calling the territory Hatti, they continued using the Hittite hieroglyphic writing system, albeit to write in a different but related Luwian language. Kings of various Neo-Hittite kingdoms claim descent from ancient Hittite kings, but none of these minor states were ever able to recapture the former territory of the empire. We know very little about the Neo-Hittite states and how they were organized, not even the exact systems of government that they were using, and despite not having detailed documentation or wielding significant political power, we do know that they grew wealthy by controlling overland trade routes from east to west. Many of those trade routes doubtlessly connected to the Phoenicians, but many also would have diverted north, across Anatolia, and into Europe, specifically to Greece. The Greeks had suffered particularly harsh conditions during the Bronze Age collapse. In the late Bronze Age, the Mycenaean civilization had dominated mainland Greece and the surrounding islands. The Mycenaeans built monumental palaces and evidently became very wealthy through maritime trade, but in the 1100s BCE, the world seems to have collapsed around them. Palaces and cities were burned and abandoned, and the writing system, called Linear B, vanishes entirely. This truly dark age for the Greeks actually lasted longer by centuries than it did for much of the Near East. With no written record or even monumental architecture, we are left with scant archaeological records and the retroactive histories of later Greek historians to fill in the blanks. What is clear is that during this time, the Greeks were developing new political theories that would eventually emerge into their characteristic city-states, and early forms of democracy, and oral histories and religious myths from the Mycenaean period were growing into the mythological tales that many modern listeners will be familiar with. However, it was not until the 8th century that Greek writing, now based on the Phoenician alphabet, re-emerged. It was in this rebirth of Greek writing that Homeric literature like the Iliad and the Odyssey and the early compilations of Greek mythology were created. It was also in this period that several groups of Greek speakers migrated eastward to the coast of Anatolia, where they settled and created culturally Greek colonies. 
Now, though, we must move south, but keep the Greeks and those colonies in mind, because if you've read ahead, so to speak, you'll know that we'll be coming back to them. South of Greece was Egypt, already the site of variably great empires and fractious kingdoms for thousands of years by the collapse of the international system during the end of the Bronze Age. In 1177 BCE, Pharaoh Ramses III led Egypt in a battle with migratory marauders called the Sea Peoples in his records. These Sea Peoples have become a hot topic among modern scholars, and I use modern to mean basically since the 19th century, because many have tried to determine who they were and exactly how much of the Bronze Age collapse can be attributed to them. Despite successfully fending off the invaders, Egypt was not unscathed in the general collapse. As international trade routes collapsed around them, Egypt suffered in the ripple effect. Ramses III was assassinated, and infighting amongst his heirs and their descendants weakened the dynasty so severely that a rival king, the pharaoh Smendes, took control of the southern half of the kingdom, and the priesthood in Thebes was effectively ruling the northern half. The country was reunified in the 10th century by a Libyan dynasty, but about a hundred years later, a civil war rocked Egypt once again and created more instability. Within one generation, Nubian kings from the modern Sudan were pushing into Egyptian territory, and for most of the 8th century and the first half of the 7th, Egyptian territory was controlled by Nubian kings, until the arrival of the Assyrian Empire in the 670s BCE. But before we get to Assyria, there are a few others that need to be addressed. Immediately to the northwest of Egypt sat a myriad of relatively minor kingdoms, mostly of Canaanite descent, mixed with a few new arrivals who came during the collapse. All things considered, if two of these kingdoms had worshipped basically any other god, I probably wouldn't even be bothering to mention anything more about them. They were frequently vassalized by their neighbors, and some are even included on maps of Egyptian territory during the time period. However, the Jewish kingdoms of Israel and Judah require some attention of their own. Little is known about the Jewish kingdoms and how they came to exist outside of the biblical account, the pharaoh Merneptah recorded conquering a tribe called Israel in the 13th century BC, but there is no firm evidence for a kingdom of Israel until the 11th, and in fact most of our sources from this time period actually call that kingdom Samaria, after the name of their capital city, rather than the biblical name Israel, and there is no evidence for Judah until the 9th century. It wasn't even until the 7th that Jerusalem became a clear regional population and political center. Many of their kings, as recorded in the Bible, can be verified in the historical record, but the evidence for the historical politics does not always match up with the biblical account. Given their position between Egypt and Phoenicia on the coast, the Hebrew kingdoms were often the targets of Egyptian and later Assyrian subjugation. Moving eastward again, we come to the Aramaeans, a cultural group that was new on the scene during the Dark Age. Previously a culture of tribal pastoralists from around what is now southern Syria in northern Arabia, the Aramaeans exploded onto the scene from the 11th to the 8th centuries, taking control of smaller states in Syria, Mesopotamia, and the Levant. But this was not a burgeoning new empire. The Aramaeans were a collection of small competing states similar to the Neo-Hittites to their north. This was typically a local kingdom claiming the approval of a local god and a hereditary succession to the throne. There are very few internal histories from the Aramean kingdoms, and their stories are usually reconstructed by modern scholars with the aid of outside sources. 
but they all agreed that there was frequent warfare between the Aramean kingdoms when not rallying together to face an external foe. Further east, the Aramaeans were one of the tribes that had invaded the ancient territory of Babylonia as the Bronze Age transitioned to iron. Centered on the ancient and famous capital of Babylon, Babylonia had been one of the great Bronze Age kingdoms, but by the beginning of 1155 BCE, with the fall of the so-called Kassite dynasty, the kingdom began to fracture. Two rival claimants to power quickly seized control of different areas, and neither side could claim supremacy. So before long, a series of unrelated kings rose and fell from favor. Some were native Babylonians, others were from a foreign group called Chaldeans, still others came from Elam to their east. Describing the history of this period, the historian Mark van de Meerup writes, quote, Most of these men accomplished little, and a political history of this period can easily read like a mere succession of names, unquote. The Aramaeans were invaders from the west, as were the Chaldeans, but it was the Aramaeans who settled in such large numbers along the Tigris River that their language started to become the new lingua franca of the region, supplanting the already ancient Akkadian language in many places. However, the Aramaeans that settled in Babylonia were mostly disinterested in seizing political control of the territory, so that distinction goes to the Chaldeans, who established firm control over western and southern Babylonia by the mid-9th century, and would eventually go on to re-establish a powerful Babylonian kingdom. Despite all the chaos of this period, written records and urban life did not dry up like they did in so many other places. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Epics and chronicles were still inscribed on clay tablets that have lasted to the modern day, recording the culture and history of Babylon during the period. Supplemented with outside records, we can actually develop a fairly clear history. Babylonian cities also continued, rather than falling into abandonment like they did in the West. However, it would not be until the 9th and 8th centuries that urban areas would begin to expand again as they once had. Even as the Aramean and Chaldean tribes became part of Babylonia, 
other tribal invasions in the west continued to put strain on the Babylonian kings, who would eventually start calling on Assyria, their northern neighbor, for aid. However, as some kings welcomed the Assyrians, their involvement would prove disastrous to other Babylonian rulers, but more on that in a moment. First, we look east of Babylon to the territory of Elam, located in southwestern Iran, including the modern province of Fars. The Elamites bring us tantalizingly close to the Persians, as the Persian Empire would rise out of former Elamite lands within five centuries of the Bronze Age collapse. However, before being displaced by Iranian tribes out of the Zagros Mountains to their north, the Elamites were a powerful, if not well-understood, kingdom. Their most ancient Bronze Age records are written in a language we call Proto-Elamite, which we can only partially decipher, and the later Elamite language that was used during this time period is also only partially understood. The period of the collapse seems to have struck Elamite territory particularly harshly, but possibly only tangential to the Bronze Age collapse around the Mediterranean. In 1100 BCE, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar I sacked the Elamite capital at Susa, and after that, they almost completely vanished from the historical record, until they show up fighting alongside Babylonians against Assyria almost 400 years later. I say the Elamite collapse was tangential to the Mediterranean collapse, because it would seem odd that they were so dependent on lands that were so far away, while Babylon and Assyria, much closer to Elam, weathered the storm more successfully. Instead, alternative suggestions must be made. Though there are no records that can say anything with certainty, it seems possible that climate change affecting the Mediterranean could also have been affecting Elam in some drastic way, or that Elam was facing its own tribal invaders. We know that at some point in this time frame, the ancestors of the eventual Iranian tribes, including the Persians, had to enter the region. It is also possible that some other migration or political event as of yet unknown to us was the cause of four centuries of relative silence from the Elamites. Even when they do begin to reappear in Babylonian and Assyrian records consistently, it is still as a pretty fractious culture. Elamite kings and their rivals are often cited as seeking Assyrian aid in their attempts to keep and usurp the throne. Local lords seem to have been so powerful that several of my books actually characterize Elam more as a confederation than a proper kingdom, and it would appear that this instability would eventually leave them an unstable enough kingdom that the Iranian tribes from the mountains could come in and control all of their former territory. At long last, we turn to the empire that would soon conquer and subjugate huge swaths of the Near East from the Mediterranean to the Zagros Mountains of western Iran. But this is not Persia, at least not yet. Located directly north of Babylonia on the northern parts of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers was Assyria, another Bronze Age kingdom that had clung to life, albeit in a diminished state, through the tumult of the collapse. Assyria was a militaristic society, where the army formed the basic structure of the state hierarchy. They also left huge written records of their kings, armies, and achievements written in Akkadian, as the powerful kingdoms of Mesopotamia had done for millennia by the beginning of the Iron Age. All sources point to them as brutal conquerors, their own most of all. The Assyrian kings played up their own brutality to their enemies as a propaganda tool, inscribing vivid descriptions on monuments wherever they conquered. And they conquered far and wide. At the end of the 10th century BCE, Assyria was a small state along the Tigris River, essentially a corridor between the two ancient Assyrian capitals of Ashur and Nineveh. In 911 BC, 
the king Ashurdan II reinvigorated his kingdom by initiating a series of conquests. At that same time, Aramean tribes were becoming increasingly powerful, and urban and village life was diminishing. On the western frontier, he reasserted power over the Aramean tribes which had occupied his domains, and to his east, Ashurdan conquered new territory as well, to secure his borders. Over the first half of the 9th century, Ashur and Nineveh were transformed into administrative centers for an expanding empire. The empire that began with Ashurdan's conquests is sometimes called the Neo-Assyrian Empire, Neo meaning new to indicate that the Assyrian Empire of the Bronze Age had collapsed, and this was essentially a new entity. In 883, a new king, Ashur Narsipal II, consolidated and expanded western Assyrian territory all the way to the Zagros Mountains in Iran. It is in the context of these conquests that the first usage of a word resembling Persian appears to describe an Iranian tribe. He then turned to his north, south, and east, and conquered every state that bordered Assyria, mostly Aramean polities and other tribes, but to the south he seized parts of Babylon, where he installed new kings as old ones no longer served his interests. This began what would eventually prove to be a disastrous course of Assyrian kings trying to control Babylonian politics. In the east, Ashurnarsipal faced coalitions of Aramean states, including one led by Damascus, a city-state at the time which gathered a force of Arameans, Arabs, Phoenicians, and Israelites. The coalition held off Assyria for 12 years before collapsing, but by the time it did, Assyrian forces had already turned back. Ashurnarsipal's successor, Shalmaneser III, had turned back to deal with internal rebellions. Revolting provinces and vassals became a hallmark of Neo-Assyrian history. Their military tactics included rape, pillage, torture, and mass deportation of their enemies. They followed their brutality with a heavy burden of taxes and tribute payments, all funneled back to the Assyrian heartland where they funded grand building projects and the reconstruction of ancient cities. But when the burden of Assyrian rule grew too intense, their subjects would revolt, and Assyria would respond with brutal suppression and heavier taxation. You can see how a cycle quickly developed. Once the revolts were dealt with, though, Shalmaneser III did not go west again. Instead, he turned north, conquering Neo-Hittites and other tribes there. It was in this first push north that Assyria's borders clashed into those of Urartu, the only major player in the region that we haven't discussed yet. Urartu was a large kingdom established by a confederation of local tribes during the Dark Age, radiating out from Lake Van in eastern Anatolia. Unfortunately, not much is known about the Urartians, because the language their texts are written in is not well understood, and there has not been thorough archaeological study of their sites. After this first encounter with Shalmaneser, Urartu would become a constant rival to Assyria, fighting them directly as well as funding Iranian tribes in the Zagros to encourage further attacks on their rivals. Despite these wars, Shalmaneser carried out comparatively little expansion, focusing instead on consolidating his existing territory, conducting building projects, and establishing a new internal bureaucracy for his empire. However, as the king aged, centralized power diminished, and his successor spent the following decades suppressing revolts and fighting internal rivals. Shalmaneser died in 842 BCE, and by 762, internal divisions became so distraught that native Assyrian cities, like the ancient capital at Ashur, had rebelled. The king at the time was Tiglath-Pileser III, who not only re-established royal authority, but launched a campaign of expansion. 
It is then that the Assyrian kingdom really became an empire. Tiglath-Pileser subjugated more Neo-Hittite and Aramean states right up to the Mediterranean coast, where he turned the Phoenician city-states and Israel into tribute-paying vassals. As further kings solidified Assyrian rule, another coalition led by Aramean Damascus revolted and was put down with the craftspeople and local leaders being deported to other parts of the empire. But one member of that coalition, the Kingdom of Israel, revolted again in an event made famous by the Hebrew Bible. In 722 BCE, the Assyrian king Sargon II claimed to deport over 27,000 Israelites and move a smaller number of deportees from elsewhere in the empire to settle their new province of Samaria, the former kingdom of Israel. More compliant cities like those in Phoenicia were left as vassals, and Judah and the Philistines to the south were left nominally independent to act as a buffer between Assyria and Egypt. With minor states in the west firmly under his foot, Sargon II turned north and invaded Urartu in 714. Conveniently, or perhaps purposefully, this invasion came at the same time as that of a tribe called the Sumerians were invading Urartu out of the Zagros Mountains. This was a death blow to the Urartians. The kingdom was not conquered, nor did it vanish, but it was never a threat to Assyria again, and by the time of the Persian Empire, the region was firmly in control of Armenians rather than Urartians. The next major expansion of the Assyrian power did not come for several decades. Over the course of six Assyrian kings in the 7th and 8th centuries BCE, 20 Babylonian monarchs rose and fell. Some were Assyrian kings temporarily in control of their southern neighbor, others Assyrian nobles appointed by the kings, or loyal native Babylonians, but also Babylonians and Chaldeans who would seize power and revolt against Assyrian influence. For most of a century, Assyria would seize power in Babylon, gradually diminish, and then come into conflict with various coalitions from the different ethnic groups within Babylonia, usually supported by Elamite kings who used Babylon to curb Assyrian power. Finally, in 647, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal had enough. He marched south and seized control of Babylon before turning east and invading Elam, where he sacked their capital at Susa. The invasion seems to have been disastrous for the Elamites, because after this assault, Elam once again vanishes from the historical records, and the next time Susa and the Elamite homeland appear in our narrative, it will be under the control of Medes and Persians. In Babylon, Ashurbanipal would rule as king himself for the rest of his reign, rather than risking another rebellious vassal. With the Aramaeans, Neo-Hittites, Urartians, Babylonians, and Elamites all subservient to Assyria, the Assyrians finally turned to Egypt. Egypt was the last of the great ancient powers left standing beside Assyria, and even saying that is a stretch, as this was the time period where Egypt was ruled by foreign Nubian kings. Regardless of who ruled there, Egypt had been supporting revolts in Assyria's western provinces for over 150 years. A direct invasion had never been practical, given all of their rivals closer to the Assyrian heartland. One attempt by Ashurbanipal's predecessor had led to temporary control over northern Egypt, but the Nubians quickly pushed them back out. However, Ashurbanipal no longer had other rivals to focus on, and he turned the full force of Assyria to Egypt. I imagine his personal entourage groaning as he ordered them to turn around at Elam on the eastern edge of their empire and march all the way to the western frontier to invade Egypt. But they did, and Ashurbanipal pushed the Nubians south of the southern Egyptian capital at Thebes. He made a local notable called Necho, now Pharaoh Necho I, the new ruler and his vassal. 
Neko's son Samtik was taken to be educated in Assyria. When Samtik became pharaoh himself, he remained an ally to the Assyrians, despite claiming that Egypt was now nominally independent. And Assyria would need its allies. Despite being at the height of its power in 640 BCE, Assyria would be wiped off the map in less than 30 years. Ashurbanipal died in 627, and his succession was immediately disputed by his sons. Different parts of the empire began to back different claimants to the throne, and in the chaos, a Chaldean noble, formerly an official in the Assyrian hierarchy, seized control of Babylon. His name was Nabopolassar, or Nabu Apla Usur, in Akkadian. By 616, he controlled most of Babylonia as an independent kingdom, with plans to launch a campaign of conquest into Assyria. In two episodes, we will follow the kingdom of Babylon as it becomes the Neo-Babylonian Empire, with the help of a newcomer to the world stage, the Medes, the first Iranian tribe to establish a major Near Eastern Empire, if only for a moment, before Cyrus the Great uses them both as stepping stones to his own imperial ascendancy. But first, the next episode will explore the origins of these Iranian tribes that would soon be shaping world history. Until then, you can find more information about the show, a bibliography, and maps at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. New episodes will be available there, or wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. And if you don't see it somewhere, let me know and I'll see what I can do. You can contact me with suggestions and feedback either on the website or at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. I'm happy to say that I'm also on social media as the History of Persia Podcast on Facebook or at History of Persia, capital H, capital P, no the, on Twitter. If you enjoyed the show today or you're excited for what comes next, tell a friend, share on social media, or leave a review on iTunes to get the word out. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.